How's it going, guys? I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. Before we get into today's episode, I quickly would like to mention a few things. First of all, thank you for listening to the show. Words for Granted has just celebrated its one-month anniversary, and in that short amount of time, I really can't believe the amount of positive feedback I've received. It's really, really motivating. I have every intention to keep this ball rolling, so if you have any suggestions about what I can do to make the show better, please reach out to me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. I would like to remind you that this show is free, and it does take up a lot of my time, so if you're a fan and would like to show your support, there's a link to my Patreon account at wordsforgranted.com. For those of you who don't know, Patreon is a crowdfunding service that allows independent creators to get their work out into the world. I don't have NPR funneling dough into my bank account. I don't have sponsors. It's just me, here, recording in my closet. Literally. So, if you contribute as little as $1 a month, that's right, just $1 a month, I soon will be posting bonus materials only available to you guys who donate to the show. The next thing I'd like to address is something I said in last week's episode about polysemous words. I define a word as a series of letters that are strung together in a particular sequence that corresponds to a particular meaning. In the context of English, or any other language whose writing system utilizes a phonemic script, this definition is correct. However, not all languages utilize phonemic scripts, yet those languages still have words. A phonemic script is basically an alphabet whose characters correspond to individual phonemes, or letters, that can then be strung together to form words. However, some languages use a logographic writing system, and others use a syllabary system. In a logographic writing system, words or phrases are represented by a single character. Many East Asian languages such as Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and others utilize a logographic writing system. In a syllabic writing system, individual syllables are represented by a single character. Mycenaean Greek, North American Cherokee, and African Vi are a few languages that use a syllabic writing system. The bottom line is that every language has words regardless of how it writes them down. Okay, with those things out of the way, Let's move on to today's topic. How many of you guys eat meat? My guess is, a lot of you. According to a recent statistic, about 95% of U.S. adults consume meat on a regular basis, and in many other Western countries, the statistic is about the same. Now, if we were to go back in time and survey English speakers from, say, the 17th century with the question, how many of you guys eat meat? the answer would be a unanimous 100%. On one hand, the sheer idea of vegetarianism wasn't really around back then, but on the other, the question itself would have had a different meaning to them than it does to us today. Until roughly 200 years ago, the word meat did not refer exclusively to animal flesh consumed for human nourishment. What it referred to was the edible portion of something or, perhaps more concisely, any form of solid food. Pretty much anything that made its way onto the dinner table, whether a scoop of ice cream, a bowl of salad, or a hunk of steak, would have been considered meat. 
This usage is mostly dead, with the exception of its appearance in the British-English word mincemeat, which is a conglomeration of fruits and spices that does not necessarily contain meat as we know it today. While animal flesh consumed for human nourishment and all forms of solid food are by no means the same thing, they're almost the same thing, both definitions refer to some kind of food. What this means is that even if you were to misinterpret the precise meaning of meat in a semantically outdated piece of writing, you wouldn't be that off. You might mistake an apple pie for a chicken breast, but that's not the same as mistaking, say, an apple pie for an oven. This makes meat different from the other words we've looked at so far on this show. For instance, villain used to mean rustic, lowborn, or uncivilized, and weird used to mean fate or destiny. The modern meanings of these words bear no resemblance to the older meanings out of which they've evolved. On the contrary, the modern meaning of meat, which we've defined as animal flesh consumed for human nourishment, is more like a narrowing or specialization of its older meaning, which we've defined as any form of solid food. Though written records do suggest that meat was used as a word for animal flesh in as early as the 14th century, it was only during the 19th century that the specialized modern sense of the word really caught on and superseded the older sense of all solid food. When a phenomenon such as this occurs, linguists aptly call it semantic narrowing or semantic specialization. Meat is also different from the other words we've looked at because the circumstances of its evolution in English aren't particularly interesting. In today's episode, instead of piecing together a historical linguistic narrative, we're going to explore the various implications of the word meat in a single archaic text, the King James Bible. But... First, in order to put the word into a broader context, let's take a brief look at its etymology. Meat comes from the Old English word meta. It most commonly was spelled M-E-T-E, and like the original modern English sense of the word, it meant all solid food. In the grand scheme of linguistic changes that generally occur over time, the word meat has remained remarkably intact for over a thousand years. The modern word sounds very similar to its Old English predecessor, and though its meaning has changed, as we've already said, the modern sense of the word is not a proper evolution of its predecessor, but a specialization thereof. The Old English word meta has cognates in many other ancient Germanic languages, including West Frisian, meta, Old Saxon, meti, Old High German, maz, Icelandic, mater, and Gothic, mats. I should point out that I've never studied any of these languages formally, so if I've mispronounced any of these words, I apologize. These cognates all go back to the mutually shared Proto-Germanic language and are derived from the root word matis, which, surprise, surprise, meant all solid food. Now that we've covered the basic etymology of meat, let's turn our attention to the King James Bible. Published in the year 1611, the King James Bible marks one of the most significant events in the history of English literature. I don't want to go into too much historical detail surrounding the publication of the King James Bible, but here's what you should know for the context of today's episode. 
Before the invention of the printing press, the Bible was transcribed by hand, and very few copies of it actually existed. Furthermore, these manuscripts were not written in the common vernacular of the time, but in Latin, so very few people outside of the clergy could actually read them. The publication of the King James Bible changed this. Though it wasn't the first translation of the Bible into English, it was the first translation to permeate the masses like wildfire. For the first time ever, the people of England had access to the Word of God in a language they could understand. The King James Bible immediately became the authorized English translation, and some Christians still consider it authoritative today. Given its wide range of influence, the language contained within the King James Bible was influential and, to some degree, fundamental to modern English at large. For a translation that's 405 years old, it's remarkable that anyone outside the realm of academia still reads the King James Bible today. Though impressive, the longevity of this readership has resulted in a unique problem. Modern printings of the King James Bible preserve the original language with which it was translated, and since the text is over four centuries old, it is very semantically outdated. Even though we can read most of the words that appear in the King James Bible, this doesn't mean that the meanings of these familiar-looking words have remained constant over time. In fact, quite the opposite is true. The usage of the word meat in the King James Bible is a great example of the major semantic gap that exists between the translators of the text and the book's audience today. In Genesis 1.29 through 30, God says, quote, Behold, I have given Adam and Eve every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. End quote. In modern English, the sentence kind of makes no sense. God explicitly gives Adam and Eve two things, herbs and fruits, and neither of these things are meat. So when God says, to you it shall be for meat, does he misspeak? Did someone get the translation wrong? The answer is no and no. And by this point in the episode, I assume you know why. We're looking at a text translated at a point in history when meat primarily referred to any form of solid food. But imagine how a modern-day Christian with no interest in historical linguistics might misinterpret this passage, especially if he or she is inclined toward a literal interpretation of the Bible. According to the King James Version of Genesis 129-30, it legitimately looks like God has added meat as we know it, albeit via some illogical syntax and grammar, to Adam and Eve's diet. However, the word meat, as it appears in this passage, is translated from the Hebrew word okla, which means any form of food or nourishment. There is absolutely no connection between animal flesh and the word meat, not only in this passage, but in the entire King James Bible. When referring to the meat of animals, the word usually used in translation is flesh. So, how do modern versions of the Bible translate Genesis 1.29 through 30? Translations such as the New International Version and the Modern English Version render the passages as something like, quote, Behold, I have given Adam and Eve every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree, in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for food. End quote. Earlier, 
I said that under most circumstances, misinterpreting the precise sense of the word meat in semantically outdated texts isn't a big deal. You might mistake a chicken breast for an apple pie, but food is food. But when dealing with the Bible, or any religious text for that matter, the interpretive stakes are a little higher. These are not the words of a fictional character from an outdated novel, but allegedly the eternal words of God himself. Let's take a look at the King James Version of Genesis 6.21, just five chapters after the previous passage we read. Here, God states that, quote, And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. End quote. Guess what? The word translated as food is akla, the same exact Hebrew word that in Genesis 1:29 through 30 was translated as meat. According to the original Hebrew text, there is no discernible difference between the usage of the word akla in Genesis 1:29 and 30 versus its usage in Genesis 6:21. I suppose I should address the fact that the words meat and food coexisted as synonyms in the English language up until the 18th century. Now, you may be wondering, why wouldn't the translators just stick with one word or the other? That's a fair question. And though I can't answer it with 100% certainty, my guess is that the translator's word choice would have been determined by either A, the word that had a better poetic flow in the context of the passage in which it appears, or B, the word that popped into his head first. This kind of inconsistent translation occurs in the King James Version of the New Testament as well. Consider Matthew 3, 4, which reads, quote, John the Baptist's meat was locusts and wild honey, and Acts 14, 17, which reads, quote, He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness, end quote. The word translated as both meat and food in these passages is the Greek word trophe, which, like the Hebrew word akla, meant food or nourishment, not animal flesh. On several occasions, the translators of the King James Bible use the word meat as a metaphor, and even its figurative application seems semantically inaccurate to the modern reader. John 4.34 reads, quote, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. And, of course, the speaker is not suggesting that his Big Mac is about to come back to life and start running around spreading the word of God. A more accurate modern translation might read, quote, My spiritual duty is to do the will of him that sent me. End quote. And in John 6.55, Jesus says, quote, My flesh is meat indeed. End quote. Even for a passage concerning the Eucharist, which, for those of you who don't know, is the Christian sacrament in which bread and wine are eaten and drunk in remembrance of the body and blood of Christ, the word meat has a cannibalistic ring to it. In later translations of the Bible, this line is usually rendered something like, quote, My body is the true food, my flesh is the true food, or my flesh provides true nourishment. I think it's safe to say that these updated translations are improvements. Meat is not exactly a metaphor I associate with the body of Christ. When used as a metaphor in relation to the human body today, meat usually has a negative or sexual connotation. 
These examples of ambiguous and outdated semantics point in the direction of a controversial conclusion. There is no such thing as the literal word of God, at least not in translation, and especially not in translations over 400 years old. The meanings of words change over time, and if they didn't, I wouldn't have a podcast to share with you. Now, I'm not trying to make or break anybody's faith here. All I'm saying is that from a linguistic point of view, a translation is never, ever literal. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about a translation of the Bible or a translation of a Stephen King novel. If you do, in fact, believe that the Bible is the literal word of God, but you've been reading the Bible in English, perhaps it is more accurate to say that you're reading a translation that has interpreted the literal word of God because an interpretation is the best that any translation can do. Before wrapping up this episode on meat, I'd like to digress from the word itself and address a myth regarding meat-related words such as pork, beef, veal, and mutton. Pork comes from pigs, beef comes from cows, veal comes from calves, and mutton comes from sheep. Why is it that sometimes we linguistically distinguish an animal from its meat? According to a common myth, words such as pork, beef, veal, and mutton, among others, were invented by meat-eaters as a way of euphemistically disguising the fact that they're eating other mammals. By using one word for the animal and another word for its meat, the fact that pork is actually the flesh of a dead pig is linguistically circumvented. But the historical linguistic evidence just doesn't add up in support of this myth. All of the meat-related words I just mentioned first appear in English writing during the 14th century, and each of these words comes from Old French. That is significant. In the wake of the Norman-French invasion of England, thousands of French words came pouring into English. I haven't discussed the history of the Norman-French invasion on this podcast yet, but for the sake of this episode, there is at least one historical detail that you should know. Following the Norman invasion in the year 1066, French became the official language of the ruling class in England for nearly three centuries. However, the rest of the population continued to speak various dialects of English. During this period of history, French was considered refined and polite, whereas English was considered lowly and impoverished. So, Out on the farms, the Anglo-Saxon peasants were referring to their livestock by Germanic-derived English names, but by the time these animals made their way into the aristocratic kitchens in the form of food, the aristocracy was referring to them by Latin-derived French names. For example, beef comes from the French word boeuf, while cow comes from the Germanic coup, but both words simply meant cow, as in the animal. If you're wondering why certain meats such as chicken, turkey, and fish are just referred to by one name, it's because these meats were not often eaten by the French-speaking aristocracy during this time. Well, that's it for this one, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to reach me directly with comments, criticisms, or anything at all, you can email me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. If you're already in love with the show and want something more, head over to the Words for Granted blog at wordsforgranted.com. 
I'll be posting short articles about the origins of words relevant to current events. I also urge you to leave a positive review on iTunes if you get the chance. That really helps put the show into the hands of more listeners. Don't forget to follow the show on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join in on a conversation. By the way, if you share the show on any social media platform, let me know and I'll send you a free download of the Words for Granted theme song by Zach Tenorio Miller. This offer won't last forever, so share soon or forever hold your peace. All right, I'll see you next time here at Words for Granted. Thank you.